Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Hello, and thanks for joining us today on A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. My name is Jacqueline Witt. I'm a professor of strategy and the War Room podcast editor here at the U.S. Army War College. One of the most persistent features of military organizations is the rapid turnover of leaders at every level. From company grade to four-star, leaders stay in their positions only for a few years. And when leaders change out, organizations can go through a tumultuous transition. At a minimum, organizations must adapt to different leader personalities and communication styles, and sometimes must adapt to new objectives and goals for the organization. And so when you're working at the strategic level, contact with that strategic leader might be short, episodic, and sporadic, and that can exacerbate the impact of the changeover. Uh, So I've invited two of my colleagues here from the Army War College to talk about these transitions and to help us think through um, what staffs and what leaders might do to make them maybe more efficient. Uh, Colonel Bob Bradford is an Army Operations Research Analyst who has served in four-star commands in Iraq, Afghanistan, Tampa, and the Pentagon. And Matt Coburn is an Army Special Forces Officer who has served five tours in Afghanistan and has served with several three-star headquarters in the United States and NATO. So, uh, Bob and Matt, thanks for joining us here at the War Room. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks. All right, so we'll start with a couple of basic orientation questions uh, for listeners who might not be totally familiar with sort of the structure of the DOD and the military. But can you tell us a little more about three- and four-star commands? Um, You know, how many there are, what kind of organizations you're talking about? So when we say change out or change over at the strategic level, what are we really talking about? So... Within DOD, there are a number of four-star level commands. Some are joint, the combatant commands, that uh, really manage the application of force, the employment of forces across the world. Those are things like Central Command that does the Middle East, Africa Command, which has responsible for Africa, Europe Command, Indo-Pacific Command. And then there's some functional commands like Special Operations Command, Transportation Command, and Strategic Command, and Cyber Command. So those commands have a four-star officer. Those are joint commands, so their um, staffs are made up of officers from all services. Uh, Additionally, there are some service four-star commands. So within the Army, there's Army Training and Doctrine Command, or U.S. Army, which is responsible for training initial entry and accessions of uh, soldiers into the Army. There's Army Forces Command, which is in charge of readiness of the force that we then provide to the combatant commanders for them to employ. Uh, the Air Force and Navy have similar four-star level commands. And then there's also uh, kind of the, the Army headquarters, the Navy headquarters, the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. where there are four-star leaders that are responsible for organized training and equip the force. Um, the ones I didn't mention, some are international commands. So right now, Resolute Support is a NATO uh, coalition larger than NATO command in Afghanistan, which is responsible for helping... Uh, the Afghan uh, security forces be able to provide security for their country. Uh, that is right now and has been for the last number of years a U.S. four-star as well. 
but his staff is uh, integrated across the nation, so they're contributing. So multinational. All right, so it sounds like these are among the largest and most complex organizations within the Department of Defense or within the international military arena. Uh, Four-star officers are the highest-ranking general officers or flag officers that we have. So there are not that many of them. Uh, In the United States, there's more than you might find in other in other places, uh, just because of the size of our of our military, but even at this level, you're saying that these these folks change out uh, quite frequently, maybe between every two and four years. Is that pretty typical? Uh, I've even seen them change out uh, at the three star level each year, three years in a row. Wow! So that feels like that person who's coming into that job doesn't have a lot of time to get up to speed and certainly doesn't have a lot of time to maybe affect changes. Um, do their staffs stay on for longer than that? So uh, generally they do um, with the exception of kind of these deployed headquarters. I served in Iraq and Afghanistan. The headquarters were made up of mostly individual augmentees. So it wasn't a home team that then deployed. Okay. It was a team that all individually deployed and met on gets the, put together, met in theater uh, and so when I, I was in Afghanistan for 13 months working at the, the NATO headquarters, uh, I had a team of 16 people. Some were deployed for two months at a time. Some were deployed mm. for three months at a time. Some were six months, and a few of us were there for a year. I also had some NATO civilians that worked for me that had been in Afghanistan um, pretty much since 2001, one of them. This was in 2012, so there there was some continuity. You can't see my face right now, but my jaw is sort of on the floor, imagining that length of time. They were really good teammates. Yeah, but but that but that changeover makes it different. Yeah, that's huge variation in experience and in sort of what what you know. So not only might the leader be changing out, you also are going to have staff turnover, uh, some continuity, but that might be provided in sort of different ways in different in different places. What what then are some of the challenges that come with this kind of, of leadership transfer? So, so I make it a, the analogy that a change of command at a senior level is like a brain transplant for the organization. So it be a serious uh, medical operation. Yes. And so generally what happens when you remove this brain from the organization and put in a new brain is many of the nerves get cut. So the muscles don't really know what to do. And the muscles are the... Staff. Well, so from from the op- operation of the headquarters, it's the staff. It's not the subordinate units that are actually doing things. They're continuing generally on good direction. And the commander, uh, really importantly, his first focus is not on making his staff efficient. It's in maintaining the actual mm-hmm. operations that the forces that are underneath his headquarters are doing. So that's why the brain transplant, the first nerves go out to the forces that are actually doing things. The second nerves go to his staff. And so the staff sometimes flops around twitching, waiting for guidance. Uh, So that muscle transplant isn't always, uh, or that brain transplant isn't always uh, quick or efficient in establishing the guidance. Because the mission doesn't stop. And I think that is probably the, the key. So the people who are doing the work on the ground, the subordinate units, continue to do what they're supposed to do. And it's been my experience that in a transition of leadership, the one commonality, the leaders will attempt to have little to no disruption in the operational tempo. Mm-hmm. Um, they measure effectiveness by whether or not they're able to continue to operate at that tactical level uh, with little disruption. 
meanwhile, in the headquarters, things are less than smooth and, and people are trying to sort out who does what. There may be uh, what a little the focus twitchier. is, but there's there can be no excuses for disruption that leads to a, a uh, lack of operational tempo. So, what does that feel like if you're on if you're on the staff if you're one of these sort of places where you're waiting for the nerves to regenerate? Um, what does it What does a day at work feel like if you're working for a new three or four star commander? So I, I'll give a specific example of, of how it was for me in Afghanistan in 2013 when General Allen handed over the flag to General Dunford. So General Dunford was coming. He'd, he'd been the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. He was coming to take over uh, the International Security Assistance Force, as it was called then in, in Kabul. Um, he showed up. He was there about a week seeing what was going on. And then he took command of the uh, force. His first six weeks, he spent five days in the headquarters uh, in his first six weeks in command. Uh, he was in Brussels talking to NATO. He was in the U.S. testifying to Congress. And he was traveling around Afghanistan checking out his subordinate units. Uh, when he was in Kabul, he spent most of his time interacting with either the Minister of Defense or the President of Afghanistan or the, uh, the Chief of uh, defense for the Afghan security forces. He spent most of his time outside of the headquarters, even when he was sleeping in Kabul. Mm -hmm. And so that made it difficult for me as a staff officer. So my responsibility there, I was the chief of assessments. So I was helping uh, to assess our uh, progress on, on our plan uh, to help him understand how to modify the plan or ask for additional resources. One of the major products we produced was a report that went up to our NATO higher headquarters that said, here's what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, we produced one. It got delivered just before he took command. And we this was a quarterly requirement. I had to produce another one a quarter later. And I knew it was a new boss. I knew he probably had a new voice. I knew he might have a new vision. Um, and I was really scrambling hard to try and find out what that was. Um, it was difficult for me. Uh, as the new commander came in, he brought in a new, uh, you know, personal staff. His XO was a new person that had not been in Afghanistan with us for the duration. So he did not understand that this report to NATO mattered to the 49 troop contributing countries. It was like their one thing mm -hmm. they read, and it was probably one of his most important communications means. But the XO wouldn't let me. I'm like, hey, I need to get time with the boss. No, you don't. He's too busy. Um, I need to get time with the boss. No, you don't. He's too busy. I tried to, uh, you know, I was a Colonel 06. I tried to get my two-star general to get in there, but my two-star general was changing out at the same time. So I did not have that access. New cover sort of. I didn't have cover. Um, and the uh, commander's initiative group, so there's another colonel that was the SIG chief. He, he didn't, uh, he was frequently with General Dunford, travel, or traveling around, um, but he was learning the boss up for his purposes, not to help Bob figure out what mm -hmm. my job was. And so that was difficult. At the end of the first quarter, I ended up walking in with a briefing, doing, doing the report the way that General Allen liked the report. And uh, General Dunford's a, a great gentleman, but I was a staff training tool. So when I walked in and I, he'd read the read ahead report, and he said, hey, Bob, stop briefing. This is not what I want. 
here's what I want. And he spoke for about an hour and a half. We took copious notes, um, modified the report before we sent it. And then he said, hey, I need to be involved in this process a lot earlier. Um, I, I need to do this. And so we uh, set up periodic meetings once a month where, where I would meet with him and his direct subordinate commanders at one of their dinners that they had every week. Um, and I would be one item on the agenda. I'd get mm-hmm. 15 to 20 minutes, 30 minutes maybe of their time talking about what's going on with the progress in our mission in Afghanistan, whether that was security, whether that was the development of security forces, whatever the tasks were, we would talk about them and I'd get direct input from the boss so that the report had his fingerprints on it from the beginning. So when it comes time to write the final yeah. report, it's not a so it's he, not a mystery. Everybody he knows took, what's going on. He took command in February. In April, I had this uh, you know personally difficult event as I knew I was walking into a case where I didn't have the nerves connected and I didn't know what he wanted, but I gave him the opportunity to connect that nerve. So February to April, I was flopping, like trying to figure it out, but not able to get access. April, I got direct access. After that, things were smooth and we mm-hmm. followed it. The, the July report, he was very appreciative of the process and of the content of the report. It represented what he wanted it to say. And so that specific incident to me is what made me want to yeah. talk about this subject as, you know, right now there's a bunch of four-star commands that either just changed or are going to change in the next uh, right. three to six months. And so it's not it's not anybody acting sort of maliciously or with malign intent. Everybody's trying to do their job. Everybody's busy. Everybody's trying to hit the ground running and to get moving and in the same direction. Um, but that, no, And it's not his job to focus right. on the staff. It's the staff's job to, to align to him. To get what he needs, right? Mm-hmm. I think another key player in this are the sometimes there's these informal connections and networks for from uh, personnel that have worked for the commander before, and I've always found that that's a if I'm not that person, then find that person so that you can begin to try and divine how the commander consumes information right. in order to make decisions. Uh, that's one way if you can't get the face time that you can begin to decipher what changes might need to be had inside of uh, staff functions. Yeah, the longer the longer I work for DOD, the more obvious it is that those personal connections really really do matter in the networks that are formed over over the course of a career um, can really inform decision making and processes which aren't always formal. So right? so that's key, but you can also form those networks without a long mm-hmm. history. It, um at in Afghanistan, we we colonels started having a meeting. We had Sunday mornings off, so we'd come in at eleven and we'd have a meeting and talk about what's going on this week, what's in the world of plans, logistics, ops, uh, assessments for me. Where the what's the boss's calendar? The boss's XO would come. Where is General Dunford? Three weeks from now, he's going to Brussels. Okay, we need to make sure we he has what he needs. And it really helped us anticipate so that he didn't have to tell us what he wanted. It was our job to figure it mm-hmm. out. So those, it was completely informal. It just started when one guy said, hey, I'm going to eat breakfast and let's all sit together. Um, it, it, it started with a personal connection, but it grew to a larger group. Still manageable. It was about 14 of us that would meet at the, at the highest level. Um, when it got to be as big as it was, but that really helped us maintain our situational awareness, mm-hmm. anticipate the boss's needs, 
and, and do that. The challenge when General Dunford came in is his new XO wasn't part of the team. And so when the old XO used to meet, it was very helpful to us because, oh, he's going to Brussels. Now I'm like, I got to find his calendar yeah. and uh, not always easy. Yeah. So Matt, what are some of the challenges you've seen um, maybe at NATO or in, again, in, in the deployed environments that you've been in? So one for sure in NATO is when you have a multinational soldiers, service members, they have different cultures that they come from, different expectations. Their commanders lead differently sometimes uh, in their nations. And when you also add in language as a potential barrier and obstacle, their comfort level may drop. And so one of the, I think, key components when changeover is happening is trying to keep the multinational uh, members in the loop, informed and contributing so that they uh, don't feel left out as if you're going into these informal networks and this changeover, Mm -hmm. things are happening very fast. Building in that extra time to try and keep the staff together, uh, slow things down as necessary to get things translated and let them do their job. I found a lot of uh, times Americans will fail to build in the time to allow the multinational counterparts to do their job. And when you can plan ahead and give them sufficient time, then they can really contribute. Uh, but you have to build that time and you have to mm-hmm. think ahead. Additionally, across the services, there's different, I've seen different cultures. Um, and uh, when I mentioned that I saw three different commanders in three different years, I was on a commander's action group in the multinational environment in NATO. And one of the most helpful cultures that we happened upon was a, a Navy Vice Admiral Pibus, who came in, and I believe he came in knowing he was only going to do one year. And so he seemed very much like the proverbial captain of the ship and, and did not make substantive changes. He, he knew that he could be a disruptive force and uh, never, never explicitly said it, but he really kept the, the ship moving generally in the same direction. And uh, I, I found that very helpful um, because with only one year, he almost could have done more harm than than good mm-hmm. if he had came in with a lot of new initiatives. Was it pretty clear to you from the beginning that this was going to be a, a sort of caretaking it was year not. where everybody's going to move in the same direction? It was not. In fact, it was never clearly stated. Um, it By about the six-month mark, we started to hear that there was going to be another change. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we started to say, okay, well, we need to get ready for the next change. But the goodness was that we had not had a tremendous yeah. amount of disruption in between um, by, by Vice Admiral Pivacy. He's very much a steady-as-you-go kind of leader. Mm-hmm. And he also came to the staff. He would just show up. He would circulate in and amongst the staff, and you're doing your job, and all of a sudden you're getting asked a question, and you realize it's the three-star mm-hmm. is now in your space. And uh, although – a little bit... Uh, Good to have your glasses prescription up to date, right? <laughs> yes, uh, but you, you got used to it, and it was good, and he gave you that opportunity then to have that time that, that Bob's talking mm-hmm. about, so he was quite a leader. Um, the other thing that I've seen is as you're trying to have plans and have long-term lines of effort where you have a continuous effort, shared purpose over time, and you're also trying to do assessments, when you have a new commander and who comes in and feels like they must change things to make their impact, that can be tremendously disruptive to the overall strategic and operational effort. 
So one of the things that I've seen, unfortunately, over and over again is this need for change. And so when I saw Vice Admiral Pybus, who didn't feel like he had to change things to make his impact, it was quite refreshing because that's not the norm. Yeah, so let's let's talk about this idea about making change and seeing change. So again, at these at these highest levels, these are big organizations, so they might take a while to to shift. But you could you could see a, a real change in terms of orientation or philosophy, leadership style, all of the things that you've talked about. Um, what are some of the the I guess the challenges and the opportunities that come along when you get a new a new commander at the at the strategic level, uh, when it comes to implementing change in an organization. At the at the strategic level, their ability to implement change is impacted more by things outside their organization than by things inside their organization, and sometimes that's hard. Some leaders don't realize that their relationships with um, their higher headquarters with uh, other other uh, players on the battlefield with um, other people in the country are perhaps more important than th- their ability just to be directive. Um, that's not always the case. There's some very good strategic leaders that understand that and, and manage those relationships very well. Uh, I think of General Votel, worked for him at Special Operations Command. He was really, really good. Uh, he came in. He gave. He submitted a, a uh, an email that went out to everybody. It's about two pages. This is my vision. Mostly steady ship. A little bit of I'm going to check and and we'll do uh, uh, more guidance as we get farther along. And then he spent most of his time uh, managing those relationships because some of them were um, needed a little bit more effort to manage honestly. And he spent a lot of time with Congress a lot of time with the services, um, and a lot of time with OSD, uh, making them understand that the efforts that Special Operations Command was doing when he was the commander were in support of the national objectives, um, which they were already, but had to emphasize that. Um, something some about care and feeding. Yeah, and something about uh, the analogy I used when I was at SOCOM is uh, all the special operators, and Matt's one, think of themselves as the John Wayne in the movie, you know, helping the kid. And But there's some people out there that think of spot special operators as uh, Marlon Brando in that other movie at the end of the river with all the bodies hanging around him. <laughs> and so you have to realize that and allay their fears because right. special operators are not Marlon Brando. They're a lot more like John Wayne. But you have to manage that perception so that people trust you so that you can get their help in accomplishing your objectives. Sure. I think one of the key components of the strategic leader is his willingness to inform his hire. As they become a strategic leader, there's more and more things under them, but they're closer and closer to the sun. And so keeping the political leadership, Congress, parliaments informed uh, is critical because they have such an impact on where things will go strategically, politically. And if they're ill-informed, uninformed, then that can be quite mm-hmm. disruptive. And so what's the role in their staff in helping them maintain that those highest level civil military relations? Uh, what should, say, colonels who are going to go work for these three and four star commanders be thinking about? I, I think a, an important thing is to know that that's part of your role as a colonel. Uh, 
and find the people that actually have the specific task, whether that's the congressional liaison office, mm-hmm. every four-star command has one, whether that's um, uh, 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 the public affairs office, whether that's the commander's initiatives group or his commander's action group, and help them frame the message for the boss, help them build those discussions so that they work. Uh, when, when I was in Iraq, I was uh, doing security assessments. Um, General Odierno was the commander. We would, uh, it, our boss was the chief of strategy plans and assessments. And so we would have weekly meetings with him. I would be in about every other week and get guidance. Hey, I'm gonna meet the president of Iraq I, he's got these questions. He keeps saying this. I need somebody to help me find that out. As the assessments guy, I, that was a tasker to me, and and I got it clearly. Went and met the J two, um, got the data that he needed, pr- provided it in a format that he could present to the president of the country he was in, and have the conversation that he needed to have, uh, to just on common understanding. And so, me knowing what his role was and who he interacted with, and what they thought was important. He didn't tell me. I had to figure that out. Similarly, at, at, uh, when I was at um, ISAF, these long-term relationships that Matt was talking about, I'd gone to the uh, advanced course in command and artillery battery with General Allen's chief of legislative affairs, who happened to have gone to high school in Michigan with, uh, with one of Senator Levin's staffers, right? Senator Levin at the time was the chair of the Senate or was the ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, very powerful political person who had a lot of interest in Afghanistan. And so my buddy Rich would get these emails, hey, Mm -hmm. I need to know this number. Because I had that relationship with Rich and I knew how important it was, I'd give it to him and it would go to Congress. I'd say, hey, is General Allen okay with this? Rich said, yes. I'm like, okay, well, here's the number. Uh, right. or occasionally here's why we can't give the number. Here's why it's classified and he really shouldn't use this in his press conference mm-hmm. tomorrow. But generally understanding that I'm helping general Allen by giving information out was very right. useful. And that relationship was key. Yeah. So, so it sounds like I've, I've been sort of making a list as you've been talking of, of some of the practical advice you might give, uh, to colonels who are going out to work on these stabs. And so I'm going to I'm going to try to roll them up, and if you have things to add as we mm-hmm. as we finish up, please do. Um, first would be to establish and maintain networks, both formal and informal, uh, with with staffs and other people, right, old high school buddies or whomever it is. Um, the second would be to sort of allow the space for nerves to grow and understand that sometimes nerve regeneration might be painful for you but necessary. But and the, the other thing is the, uh, the muscles need to start the nerve growth. Mm-hmm. Don't wait for the brain to generate it. Yeah. So you need to go seek seek the, the seek guidance. The, the painful guidance and the painful maybe nerve regeneration. Yes. Um, the third one might be to stay in touch with the civil military priorities of the of the strategic level leader uh, to anticipate uh, his or her needs to then know a lot about your job, but also to know a lot about other people's jobs that you're that it's all your job to know about at at this level to know where the connections are and who needs to know what Uh, and then finally to create space for multinational partners your joint partners um, and to understand that different nationalities services um, backgrounds are going to have different ways of working and that those aren't necessarily bad they might just be different. No I think I think those are good. What, What I would add to that last bit is also that not only 
do you need to enable that multinational uh, capacity inside of a staff, but you also have to understand the, the overarching political environment is different. So when you're working inside of, say, Afghanistan and Resolute Support Mission or the International uh, Security Assistance Force Mission, on behalf of NATO, NATO does not equal the United States, and so their mm-hmm. political decision-making process is quite different. And so it's important that the commander understands that. They may not have had that opportunity to work in that environment. So seeking that out, if you don't know it, get with the other na- nations. Find out how their nations receive political feedback and sure. how they make decisions, yeah. whether it's in a bilateral or multilateral or alliance capacity. I think that that can help them and your organization succeed as well. Good. So get smart on politics and, and all that that means. Bob, anything from you? So I think, you know, at the four-star staff is not the same as a brigade staff. And, and the strategic view, the view that we teach at the War College, I, I could not have been effective on the four-star staff. So I, I was, and arguably maybe I wasn't, but that I worked on if I had not been able to understand the context. And so knowing how policy gets made, who's in charge, who works for whom, how national security system works, how the international order works, who, how does NATO make a decision? If I'm assigned to a NATO headquarters and I don't know how NATO makes, comes to a mission statement, then I mm-hmm. get frustrated with the mission statement. Sure. All right, so no more stuff, get smarter and no people. Um, we're going to sign off from War Room. Thanks, Bob and Matt, for joining me today. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Jackie. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.